We return to Romans chapter 8. So take a copy of God's Word, please, and turn there, page 944 in the Pew Bible, if you need to use that. Romans chapter 8, this morning, considering uh, verses 23, 24, and 25, which is uh, continuing a, a, a theme that really began in um, uh, verse 18, which is the, the hope of glory. Let's begin our reading in ch- chapter 8 at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God." For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. As far as the reading of God's holy word. English, uh, for as great of a language as it is, um, has la- lacks coverage, we could say, for certain concepts. Um, for example, Italian has abiaco, which is the contented, drowsy feeling you get after eating a big meal. Or Japanese has sundako, which is a pile of books waiting to be read. And we have this in uh, German. Fernwe. Fernwe. Uh, Fern means far, and the we means pain or misery or woe. Fernwe. And so it's been brought into English. Uh, they've tried to bring into English as a sort of far sickness. Uh, Literally, it means a longing for a place that is far away, perhaps one that you have never even been to yet. That's what this uh, word means. And Paul describes that feeling as as a mark of the Christian. That feeling, that longing for a faraway faraway place that perhaps you haven't even been to yet. Paul uses this simple word, though, for it. Hope. Hope. Uh, indeed, that is the central theme of these verses. Hope had been introduced already in verses 20 to 21 when Paul said, you saw there that the creation is, is waiting to be set free from the curse of sin and it was subjected to that curse in hope, knowing one day it will be liberated. There's that hope. Until... The time that it will be liberated, it's groaning in the pains of childbirth. It's a suffering, a pain that leads to life. And now Paul tells us something that maybe we knew deep down already, and maybe you were thinking it last week as we considered what it's like for the creation to groan. This is what we knew deep down. Yeah, I feel that way too. I feel that way too. And as Christians, indeed, as he describes creation longing for renewal and liberation, it should sound strangely familiar to us. We should say, I Share in that feeling. Uh, There's a hope that's infused into the suffering of this world, the subjection of this world, and it's a hope that we also have. And what I want to draw out for you this morning is two simple and I hope practical uh, points, uh, facts from these verses. And the first is why we hope. Why do we have that feeling? Why is it there? Why do we hope? And then secondly, how are we to hope? What should that hope look like? What does, it, what does it look like to hope? So, this morning, why we hope and how we hope. First, why do we hope? Why do we have this, this groaning uh, for something greater? Where does that feeling come from? Well, look at the text. The answer that Paul supplies in Romans chapter 8 and verse uh, 23 is the Holy Spirit. Why do you have that feeling? The answer is the Holy Spirit. But if you look at the verse... Paul doesn't put it in that sort of straightforward language, does he? He doesn't say um, that 
we who have the Spirit hope. No, rather, he says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit have this feeling. So he doesn't just say, if you have the Spirit, you, you hope. That, that's not how he phrased it. He says, if you have the first fruits of the Spirit. What does that mean? What's the phrase first fruit mean? Well, it's right in the name. It's the first fruit of a crop uh, that, that the crop would produce in a season of harvest. And first implies there will be a second and, and third and so on. So it's the indication that there is more to come. What does first fruits mean? It means the indication of, of more things uh, to come. And Paul uses nearly identical language, Ephesians 1 and verse 14. He doesn't use the term first fruit, but he conveys the concept when he calls the spirit the guarantee of our inheritance, the guarantee, the down payment, the deposit of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what Paul is saying is when you have the the Holy Spirit, you have this guarantee, this indication that there is more to come. And what Paul is doing then by using the term first fruit, as opposed to just saying, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have hope. When he says by or what he's indicating by saying that if you have the first fruit, you have hope. He's rooting our hope in certainty. Because first fruit means something more will come. It's the indication that there's more to come. That's biblical hope. It's a certainty. It's a conviction. There's more to come. Biblical hope is never a wish. It's an eager expectation of something that is guaranteed in the future. We don't have our fingers crossed wishing that one day we'll be freed from the sorrows of sin. We know that that day will come. We know it. And we know it because we have a taste of it already in the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. That's why we hope. We hope because we have him, because we have the Spirit. Now, every single person in front of me right now has, if not at this moment, at one point in your life, or you will soon, has a feeling that this world isn't right, that things need to be fixed, that you, your life, your relationships in this world, it's broken down, and it's just not the way it should be. Things aren't working in your life, and you you need something new. That's a natural instinct for humans, to want something new. I mean, think about it. By and large, our money and our time and our energy goes to making things new and and brighter and and better and, and trying to fix things, whether that's technology or cosmetology. We're dissatisfied when we're stuck with something old and we want something new. By the way, let me just tell you, just to try to save you a lot of time and energy and potentially money, um, that no matter what new thing you get, whether it's a new gadget, a new car, a new house, a new spouse, it's not going to take away that feeling that this world isn't right, that this This place is run down and broken and not working the way it should. Um, None of it will meet the longing that you have. Nothing in this world will meet the longing that you have. C.S. Lewis is the one who said it best when he said, If I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then he says, The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If I find in myself a longing that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only reasonable explanation is that I wasn't made for this world. So that desire, a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, is, is not unique to Christians. Every human has that desire. The feeling that things are broken down and run down and aren't working right is not unique to Christians. Every 
human has that sense. That, that feeling is not what Paul is talking about in verse 23 when he talks about hope. What's unique to the believer is not the desire for things to be better, but the conviction that things will be better. Do you understand? The Christian is one who longs for heaven, not because we wish for something better here on earth or wish that there was something better than earth, but because we know there is something better than earth. We know it. And the reason we know that, the reason we have hope, is because the Holy Spirit is a little bit of heaven already within our hearts. I wonder if you realize that. Did you know that what you so desperately long for in the new heavens and the new earth is something, if you're a Christian, you already have within you? Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Literally, that would translate this. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. It's there. He has it. She has it within them. The new has come in the heart of every believer. Because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that at one time covered the face of of the deep and the waters and, and formed this world and, and one day will form the next has formed a new heart in us. We have that new creation already. And now we're waiting for the rest of reality to catch up with that. That's why we have that sense that things aren't right. And actually we have a conviction that they will be better. We know it because we have a little bit of it already. The Germans speak of that, that longing for a far-off place uh, that perhaps you haven't even been to. As Christians, we have a longing for a place that's so far away it doesn't even exist yet. Not really. No, it's the new heavens, the new earth. But Paul tells us why it is that we can have that feeling. And it's, it's a real mystery because the answer is, although I have never been in this new world, indeed I have not seen it, he says that in verse 24, that new world somehow is a part of me. It's a real mystery. We say, I've tasted it, though, and I miss it. I miss it even though I haven't been there, and I want more of it. There's something of a, of a holy homesickness in the heart of every Christian. And in the words of the wise Mrs. Hughes from Downton Abbey, she says, um, if you're homesick, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It means you come from a happy home. And what a happy home the Christian has. What a happy place we have waiting for us. Look at verse 23 again. What does it say? How does it describe where we're headed? How, how can we not be happy when it says that what we're going to receive is, is the adoption as sons of God, that full welcome as children of God. But then there's more. It says we also will experience, what does it say, the redemption of our bodies. What reason is there not to be hopeful and happy when that's our future? A full redemption, not just in our in our souls, but in our bodies. You know, Paul talks about this inward groaning we have uh, to be set free. And um, if I had to guess, I'm imagining that some of you, maybe every morning you wake up, you, you make an audible groan of types, right? As you swing your feet out the bed and you realize that the pain in the knees or the hips that you could escape for a moment while you were sleeping has returned. And you think, oh, I got, I got to deal with this the rest of the day. 
or um, maybe you, you don't you don't make the, the groan, um, but, but um, your joints and your spine do. You stand up and you hear that cracking. None of that in glory. None of it. Isn't that a wonder? None of it. You know, some of you today, right now, you, you, can't, you can't see me perfectly. Um, or, or you can see me just fine, but you can't see the, the small print of the Bible in your lap. Some of you can't hear me perfectly right now. Or you could have if you had remembered to change the batteries in your hearing aids before you came this morning. None of that in glory. None of it. Do you remember what we sang just a few minutes ago? Hear him, ye deaf. And his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Savior come. And leap, ye lame, for joy. That's glory. That's the redemption of our bodies. Be made entirely new. That's our home. And we have it in our hearts. We don't have it in our bodies, but we have it. And so we know it's going to be there. And we want it so desperately. We're homesick for it. And there's no shame in that. Because it means we come from a happy home. This is why we hope. Because the Holy Spirit is in our hearts. The Holy Spirit of the new heavens and the new earth is within us even now. So that's why we hope. Now the question, the second question this morning is how do we hope exactly? In other words, we know that there's something better um, and we're not there yet. What should our attitude be in the meantime? That's the question. And I think we could draw out three things uh, from the remainder of this text for us. To be hopeful means eagerness, not delay. It means engagement, not distraction. And thirdly, it means endurance, not defeat. Now, I want you to, to see the connection between the points one and two, the why we hope and the how we hope. There's a connection between the why and the how, and this is, this is what I mean. Because, because I know that I will be redeemed in body and soul, because I know that my brokenness will be mended, because I know I'll be with God in perfect communion, because I know I will at long last belong to a non-dysfunctional family, I'll belong to, to the family of God, I'll be received as a child of God, because I know this is happening, because of that, because I have this hope, I'm eager, I'm engaged. And I endure. Let's consider those things briefly here. First, Paul says that the Christian who has the spirit of God in verse 23 waits eagerly. He's eager. He waits eagerly for what the new creation will hold. The word there conveys expectation. We've already said that that's the essence of the biblical conception of hope. Uh, It's not wishful wishful thinking. It's an expectation. Something is going to come. And it's an eager expectation. What that means is that you want Christ to come again. You want him to return. You want the new creation to dawn. You're not delaying for it. You're not dilly-dallying. You're on the edge of your seat. Do you remember verse 19? We talked about that last week where we said that the, the word Paul's using for how the creation is, is waiting for it is like the creation's on its tiptoes. It's craning its neck. It's, it's trying to get a better view. It doesn't want to miss it. Creation's on its tiptoes. Are you? That's eager expectation. You can't wait. And, you know, we have to be really, I think, uh, reflective here. We have, to, we have to think. We have to uh, consider what Paul's saying and, and 
and see what our lives uh, look like. Because if the second coming of Christ is something that you could take or leave, you know, something that, you know, if he came tomorrow, that, that, that'd be swell. But it could be next Thursday, too, or, you know, sometime in October. I mean, that, whatever, whatever, you know, that's fine. If it's something that you could take or leave, that's something you're not, you're not eagerly expecting and desiring to happen this moment, well, then you, you don't have that far sickness, that far sickness, that feeling, right? Maybe there's an area in your life where you need to reprioritize, maybe an area you need to repent. The character of Christian hope is marked by this conviction that Christ and the new creation can't come soon enough. Uh, the ver- in verse 23, it says, we groan inwardly. Um, we, we groan in ourselves. It, it could be translated, we groan amongst ourselves. And Matthew Henry, in his commentary, says, you know, if you take it that way, amongst ourselves, he says, it, it means this. He says, it is the unanimous vote, the joint desire of the whole church. All agree in this. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We're eager. That's what it means to be hopeful. We're eager. It's an eager hope. But secondly, it's an engaged hope. It's an engaged hope. Not, it's not a distracted hope. In verse 24, look there. Paul wants to make sure we're placing our hopes on the, the right sort of thing. So he's, in call, he's calling us to engagement and, and not to distraction. Um, so what, what kinds of things could distract us? What, what's he concerned about? Well, he says it's the things that we could see all around us. If, if your hope is something that you can see... Well, then you're distracted. You're disengaged from the real call of the Christian. What does Paul say? Now, hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he can see? Now, but we do that sort of thing all the time, don't we? We fool ourselves into thinking that if we could just get something, we just had something, we just attained something, we just acquire something, we'd be happy. Our lives would be better, and we're hoping for that sort of thing. Maybe some of you remember the hero, Indiana Jones, almost falls to his death because he's, he's reaching out over this chasm. He's about to fall to his death because he wants to grab this artifact that he thinks will give him happiness, that he thinks will give him eternal life, and his dad is trying to pull him back because he knows he's going to fall to his death. What does he say to his dad? I can almost touch it, but I can almost touch it. And that's what we do. We, we see these things in our lives and we think, I can, it's almost there. And if I could just change something, if I could just pivot in my career, if I could just get my spouse to be this way, if I could just get my health to, to up to here, I'll be happy and I'll have exactly what I want. And Paul says, you've placed your hope in the wrong thing. If you can see it, if it's something that you can attain in this life by, by 10 simple steps, then that's not hope at all because the character of Christian hope is that it belongs to a world that hasn't come yet. You can't see it. You can't see it. The idea here is that real hope has everything to do with the the full realization of our salvation. Right? And salvation is not just forgiveness from sins. It's glorification. It's the redemption of our bodies. That's the whole idea. Salvation encompasses all of that. Right? So real hope is set on the realization of our salvation. And that's why Paul says in verse 24, For in this hope we were saved does not mean that we are hoped or we were saved by our hoping but rather in the words of Phil Riken hope is the constant companion of our salvation we're not saved by our hope but we're saved to hope we're saved to hope right cuz god saved us to the day of redemption our salvation is fully realized at the return of christ and until then we hope we're hopeful that that 
future character of a full salvation means that we're hoping for something that we do not yet see, something we do not yet have. Christ is, is our salvation, and so he's our hope, and we don't have him face to face yet. We're longing for that day. The, the hopeful Christian is pressing on towards him, not, not distracted by the things of this world, but engaged fully in Christ. Our, our, uh, our godliness, our, our piety is bound up in understanding this. Peter makes that really clear in 1 Peter chapter uh, 1 and verse 13. says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So you set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. And when you have your hope right, your heart will be right too. And you will live the right kind of life. You won't live in sin, but in the freedom of your salvation. The hopeful Christian is honed in and engaged on the real object of true hope, which is the return of Christ. Finally, real Christian hope calls for endurance, right? What does it mean to be hopeful? How do we hope? Well, we're eager. We're engaged. We endure. We don't give, up to de- we don't give in to defeat. Uh, if we hope, this is verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Patience. There's a the sweet blend of contradictory ideas here if you compare 23 and 25 because in 23 Paul said that our hope is meant to be eager and then in verse 25 he says our hope is patient it can also be translated in in, 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 it has endurance but that doesn't that kind of seems to contradict right how can we be eager and also be patient at the same time Uh, John Stott says we are to wait neither so eagerly that we lose our patient nor so patiently that we lose our expectation but we wait eagerly and patiently together. In other words, hope knows how to hurry up and wait, right? Hurry up and wait. That's hope. We're eager for it. But even if it do- we want Christ to come right now, this moment, come. But if he doesn't, we don't become dismayed. We don't despair. We endure. So that's the idea when Paul says, We hope for it with patience or with endurance. It means that we are able, hope is able, sorry, I should say, hope makes us able to get through the sorrows of this life, the suffering of this life, the trials of this life that make us want to give up. We would give up otherwise, but we have hope, and so we endure. That's the mark of a Christian. The hopeful Christian is an enduring Christian. Christian hope gets you through the trials of this life. Again, hope is the companion of salvation, right? Uh, by this hope we were saved. We could say the cross saves us from sin. Hope saves us from despair. They go together. They go together. Octavius Winslow says, Hope is the divine emotion which buoys up the soul amid the conflicts, trials, and vicissitudes of the present life so that we are cheered and sustained and even saved from sinking among the billows by the hope of certain deliverance. Certain deliverance. Now, there are some people who think that that's just a total joke. And they get that that's a big deal for Christians, this idea of, of, you know, how do I get through the trials of today? Well, I have bright hope for tomorrow. And they they get that and they think, 
you're just fooling yourselves. You're lying to yourself. Um, right? That, that religion is the opiate of the masses. It's kind of like hope is the opiate of the, of the Christian. They, just, they think that that's going to drug them, numb them through what's so hard about life. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche once said that hope is the worst of all evils. Hope is the worst of all evils. Why? That's what he says. Because it prolongs the torments of man. Hope is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. Well, maybe if we meant by hope that sort of fingers crossed wishful thinking that ignores the realities of life. But if we take the Bible's definition, Paul's definition of what hope is, an expectation, a certainty of what's going to happen, then that does not mean... Nietzsche got it exactly backwards. Hope does not prolong the torments of man. Hope tells man that his torments will not be forever. We need it. We need it. Hope is like, uh, it's like the handkerchief that God gives his weeping children to tell them that all will be well. It will all be okay. As this Holy Spirit produced assurance that this life is not all that there is. And there is a better life to come. You're not fooling yourselves to believe that. The Holy Spirit is telling you that, and he never lies. The world doesn't understand that. They laugh at Christians, right? They think we're living a fantasy and we're fooling ourselves. Back in the 17th century, Abraham Crowley, who's a poet, wrote this nihilistic poem entitled Against Hope, Against Hope, where he stated that hope is the most hopeless thing of all. Hope is, the most, hope is the most hopeless thing of all. Well, once that poem came out, there was a Christian poet, Robert Crashaw, who uh, wrote a verse of his own in reply. So uh, Crowley's was called Against Hope. Crashaw's was called For Hope. And there he captures the idea of the endurance that marks the hopeful Christian when he said that hope is a glorious hunter. Hope is a glorious hunter. And her prey... The one she's hunting is the goodness and the grace of God. Going after that, pursuing after God, the God of hope, until we have him, until we're with him. Christian hope draws us toward God until we are with him, seeing him face to face in the person of his son. And then our hope, our anticipation, our expectation will give way to reality. Faith will give way to sight and at last, that, that fernve that we talked about, that ache, that, that pain will leave our hearts. That far sickness will go away because what was once far will have been brought near and the old will have passed away and the new will come. Can you even wait? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of hope. We thank you that uh, for believers that you have placed within our hearts the Holy Spirit, and along with him you have given us this, this hope, this assurance, this conviction that there is something better out there. There's another world. We have a little of it now, and so we miss it. We want more of it. 
So help us to be eager for it, to be focused and honed in and, and engaged in that hope which will be revealed to us at the coming of Christ, and help us to endure until the end. We thank you uh, that uh, even now, as we go through sorrows, as we go through trials, as we sin, as we um, hurt in our bodies and things don't work right and the world has all kinds of problems, and we grieve, we never grieve as those who have no hope. So keep us in that good hope, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.